Like many of you, I grew up in church, and growing up, many preachers would depict God as an arbitrary tyrant. Yet in the next breath, they would speak of him as the source of all that is true, good, and beautiful. In reality, they were the arbitrary tyrants. They would throw around the punishment of God with abandon because it gave them a rush, a feeling of power. The fact that ten-year-old me's conception of eternal damnation hung in the balance was of little concern to them. Playing God makes you feel powerful, and they wanted to feel powerful. Their contradictions were maintained not by careful reason and explanation, but rather through fear. They claimed to speak for God, so to question them was not only to question God, but also to disrespect. This gave rise to two things, a rise in outright atheism among our culture, and the other thing it gave rise to is this depiction of God as some bohemian hippie whose only concern is spreading good vibes, and he's more concerned with that than he is with that whole rescuing humanity thing. This left many of us in a sort of no-man's land, a place where God was either seen as more cruel than man, or too weak to be God. Before we go any further, I know that these matters that we are about to discuss today are perhaps the most personal beliefs that we have, and I could be wrong about all of them. People speak for God far too lightly, so I ask that each of you will hold what I'm about to say at arm's length for a while. Before you really ingest what we're going to discuss today, just hold it at arm's length. I have no desire to cause damage to any of you by replacing a belief you have before making sure that what is replacing it is truly worthy of your trust. There's a reason that most people don't answer these questions, that most people don't cover these questions. If you make one wrong move, if you give one false conception of God, you could cause someone deep, deep suffering. In Luke 17 it says, It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a stone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And that's scary enough to keep me from saying anything ever again. But our doubts don't wait, and neither should we. I'm going to be using Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis as the source of the things we're going to talk about today. I have been in church my whole life, as, as I've said many times, but that book, when I read that book about two years ago, there are a couple really difficult questions that it answered that really put some things in place for me and that brought a huge amount of peace and grace and, and sort of understanding that really has blessed my life, you know. I'm one of these people that, that kind of needs everything to fit. And when something starts to fit, it brings a great deal of peace to me. I actually think that a, a simple faith is, is a really beautiful thing. But, uh, but for those of us who, um, who do lose sleep over these questions, who do turn these big things over in our head and, and really can't go on without, without having them settled, I hope that this brings some peace to you. And I would also say that, uh, as I said a minute ago, people speak for God way too easily. And if you're someone um, that is interested and in, in plagued by these questions then the ways in which there is argument over these things 
might be something that you find incredibly interesting. Chesterton once said, of course I speak about politics and religion. There's nothing else to talk about. And so, you know, everyone, regardless of what someone's opinion is, we like to think that, or we like to project that there is no disagreement on any of these things and that whatever my opinion is, is kind of the opinion. But there is more, um, there is more variation within the fold of Christianity than, than you might think at, at first glance. And, and if you're someone that is interested by these very big ideas, which by nature of listening to this you, you likely are, um, then you might find a lot of interest and beauty in, in those things. You know, it's been kind of a, a beautiful uh, rabbit hole to, to, um, to go into these things um, for me personally. And to go back through the history, some of the history of what people have thought um, on these big ideas. And, and that has been um, a source of beautiful uh, fascination for me. Um, so anyway, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was the way in which people dismiss other religions, you know. Growing up, there's just like an outright uh, dismissal for every other religion. Like, oh, that's all stupid and that's all just like, uh, you know... You know, it's all just garbage, you know. That just never sat right with me. You know, I am a Christian. Uh, I, I believe things that, you know, that most Christians believe. I'm not scared of that title. I'm not scared of the negative reputation of, of that title. I am a Christian. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it is what it is. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not scared of that. I believe that, that, uh, that Christ died and was resurrected and, and all of these, you know, common things that, that Christians believe. But it did seem that if this is the true God, that that if this is the true story of the world, then there should be no fear associated with uh, with other religions or with other, uh, you know, with other ways of thinking. That the fear of, of those things shouldn't be there if what we truly believe is the truth. And so I want to go into a piece right here about the Christian approach to other religions, and this is directly from your Christianity. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong altogether. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian... You are free to think that all these religions contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. Yet when I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions... Christianity is right, and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. And I think that's a beautiful uh, way of depicting this idea. Um, Chesterton, I think, um, wrote in Everlasting Man somewhere that Buddhism, a lot of Buddhism is more like philosophy than it is like a religion, you know, that uh, that it's more earthly than heavenly, and it has some, you know, religious aspects, and I don't know that much about it. 
but um but that a lot of it is more philosophy that in in many ways it's kind of uh void of this person of the personhood of Christ of the this lovable knowable uh, alive being that is Christ that is uh the living god um but but that you know these other things may have truths within them and we shouldn't fear those things uh if if what we believe is the truth the second question and this is a huge objection that people have when it comes to uh when it comes to christianity or or any religion really is the exclusivity of christ without the exclusivity of christ i don't know that christianity really holds together but with the exclusivity of christ what does that mean for people that were born in another country they were born into another you know thousand year long tradition and they live and die in that tradition what happens to them in the sort of low resolution um not very thought through answer of of the typical christian certainly the typical american christian is that oh you know they they're obviously all going to die and go to hell right but the people who say that don't really believe it and you can prove it this way if you believed how many people will die in india today or africa or these other places how many people will die every single day and that if you believed that the fact that you weren't at their feet right this moment trying to convert them by force that that was the only way that this could be done then every single christian would be doing that the very fact that christians sleep at night is proof that they do not believe that that is the only way and that some people who do believe that don't sleep very well the man or woman on the street corner screaming out certain passages from the bible that person who lives in constant fear that is the person who is consistent with this belief that if you believe that what you do is the only way that that person might encounter the one true living god then you would not sleep and you would live in a constant state of panic but when we see those that do live out that belief that do live in a constant state of panic that we can tell that something is deeply off that something is wrong about that scripture says for i have not given you the spirit of fear but of love power and sound mind and when as many people die each day as they do how are we supposed to live in anything but panic So I'm going to read once again from Mere Christianity. I appreciate so deeply that Lewis had the courage to discuss this topic and the intellect to do it in a very um sophisticated way. And uh, he said in one of his writings that he was a most reluctant convert that over years and years uh that that his conversion took a very long time and it was a very painful process. But I think we reap the benefits of that in this book because he will discuss these very difficult things. So here's what Lewis had to say in Mere Christianity about the exclusivity of Christ. Here's another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is, 
God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. But we do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. And I'm going to read that one more time. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. But we do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. But in the meantime, if you are worried about the people on the outside, the most unreasonable thing you could do is to remain outside yourself. Christians are Christ's body, the organism through which he works. Every addition to that body enables him to do more. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ, who alone can help them. Cutting off a man's fingers would be an odd way of getting him to do more work. Somewhere in scripture it says that every man is given a measure of faith. And I believe that God has interactions between each human, between himself and each human, that we are not privy to, and that we should not pretend to play him, that we should truly respect him as ultimate, as powerful, as sophisticated, in a way that we will never fully understand. For to fully understand God would to be God. And if your depiction of God is one that you can completely figure out, then it's too small. The next thing that mere Christianity really blessed me with was this question of why do works matter? If we're saved by grace and not through works, then why do our works really matter? What are they for? What is life for? These are some really big questions, ones that people tend to avoid. And so I thought he captured it very beautifully. One of the pieces um, I don't have written down here, but um, he spoke in one place in Mere Christianity about how every single action is turning us into either a heavenly or hellish creature. I'm going to read a piece here. We might think that provided you did the right thing, it did not matter how or why you did it, whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerfully, through fear of public opinion or for its own sake. But the truth is that right actions done for the wrong reason do not help build the internal quality or character which is called a virtue. And it is this quality or character that really matters. For example, if the bad tennis player hits very hard, not because he sees that a very hard stroke is required, but because he lost his temper, his stroke might possibly, by luck, help him win that particular game, but it will not help him become a more reliable player. We might think that God simply wanted obedience to a set of rules, whereas what he really wants is people of a particular sort. And third, we might think that the virtues were only necessary for this present life, that in the other world we could stop being just because there is nothing to quarrel about, and that we could stop being brave because there is no danger. Now it is quite true that there will probably be no occasion for just or courageous acts in the next world, but there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we could only become as a result of doing such things here. 
The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not got certain qualities of character. The point is that if people have not got at least the beginnings of these qualities inside them, then there is no possible external conditions that could make a heaven for them. That is, if they do not have at least the beginnings of these qualities, then there is no external condition that could make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness that God intends for us. And this leads into the last thing which I wanted to discuss, and that is hell. When it comes to hell, there are typically two camps. One which believe in a purely literalistic reading that hell is a place of physical burning, and it very well may be. See, this is a very key detail. I do not know for sure what the exact nature of hell is, and everything I'm about to say to you is just my best guess and the best guess of some very smart people, and that I do not wish to speak for God and what his plans truly are. The problem with both camps, you know, you have the purely literal and nothing else camp, and then you have the sort of Richard Rohr, Rob Bell camp, which is the whole everyone goes to heaven in the end thing. Now that is a beautiful idea in some regards, but they speak about it way too surely. They speak about it way too confidently. This is God we are talking about. And all that I will ever dream or imagine will never truly speak for him. He is God, and I am just me. He will do as he sees fit, regardless of what I say, and I will not pretend to know exactly what he is like or what he has in store. But here is the best guess. For Lewis, hell is the absence of God. It is not necessarily the wrath of God, but it is the absence of God. And that when God is absent, every kind of hell is present. In his book, The Great Divorce, he wrote an allegory about hell and how, in his opinion, in the end, that hell is being given over to your own desire, it is being given over to your self-obsession. That hell is a place where there is only you. And that if you were to experience a place where there was only you, only your self-obsession, only your desire, only your knowledge, only you, that all of hell is present. And that all joy is to be found outside of you or me. That all joy is to be found in the presence, in the longing, in the looking at, in the residing in the presence of God. He spoke in his uh, spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that as soon as we have any pleasure, let's say it's a, even a movie or a song or a painting, any kind of joy, any time we experience a moment of joy, as soon as we analyze it, it is gone. That as soon as you turn away from the thing which is giving you that moment of beauty, and you turn back to yourself to ask yourself what you think about it, that the true essence of whatever it is, is gone. And that hell is a place where there is nothing outside of us. Hell is being given over 
to our own desires, to our own self-obsession. And that the separation in the end is between those who want God more than they want themselves and those that want themselves more than they want God. So now I'm going to read a piece by Peter Kreeft. Quote, The damned are in the same place as the saved, in reality, but they hate it, and it is their hell. The saved love it, and it is their heaven. It is like two people sitting side by side at an opera or at a rock concert. To one, the rock concert is heaven, and to one, the opera is heaven. And to each, the other is hell. God says to all his creatures, I know you and I love you. But they hear him saying, I never knew you, depart from me. It is like angry children misinterpreting their loving parents' affectionate advances as threats. They project their own hate onto their parents' love and experience that love as an enemy, which it is. For that love is an enemy to their egotistic defenses against joy. Since God is love, since love is the essence of the divine life, the consequence of loss of this life is loss of love. Though the damned do not love God, God loves them. The very fires of hell are made of the love of God. Love received by one who only wants to hate and fight thwarts his deepest want and is therefore torture. If God could stop loving the damned, hell would cease to be pure torture. If the sun could stop shining, lovers of the dark would no longer be tortured by it. But the sun could sooner cease to shine than God cease to be God. The lovelessness of the damned blinds them to the light of the glory in which they stand, the glory of God's fire. God is in the fire that to them is hell. For as it says in Psalms 139, If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. But the damned do not know him. Or as Lewis stated, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Both those who depict God as an arbitrary tyrant and those who depict him as a hippie agree on this one thing. They both imply that you are good enough. One implies that if you're masochistic enough, that if you hate yourself enough, that if you're guilty and shameful enough, that that will get you in. The other one believes that you're already good enough that God is the means to an end, and that you are the end, and God is the means. But scripture says that our best efforts are as filthy rags, in proximity to the real thing. Not that better isn't better, or that worse isn't worse, but that even our best in presence of the real thing is truly seen, for just how incomplete it truly is. The Christian walk is a lifelong journey of repentance, a desire to get close to the real thing, not to pretend to be the real thing, but to just get close. And if for no other reason, then that joy is found no other way.
As Lewis once said, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, class, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I love you guys.